Hello, friends, and welcome to Into the Word, a radio and online program committed to reading, loving, and living the whole counsel of God. Lord willing, our intention is to go verse by verse and chapter by chapter through the entire Bible. Here to continue that journey is our Bible teacher at Into the Word, Pastor Paul Carter. Your word is a lamp unto my feet. If you have your Bible with you, I'd love you to open it now to Leviticus chapter 12. As I mentioned in the last episode, chapters 11 to 16 address the matter of purity, which is a prerequisite for the pursuit of holiness and the enjoyment of intimacy with God. We remember, too, that the primary purpose of the ritual laws in general is pedagogical. These laws and rituals are intended to teach. So they're seizing upon situations in regular human life that provide opportunities to reflect upon spiritual realities. And that's important for us to understand. Because not everything that makes a person ceremonially unclean is necessarily sinful. It is seized upon to teach about sin, but it is not itself any kind of moral transgression. Nowhere is that more obviously illustrated than here. Babies, of course, are not sinful. Having babies, of course, is not sinful. And if I may risk speaking bluntly, when lawfully married spouses do the things that lead to having babies, that also is not sinful. Psalm 127 verse 3 says, Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb, a reward. So everything about babies is a blessing. If you've been reading through the Bible sequentially to arrive at this place, then you already know that. The blessing that Abraham and Sarah were seeking from the Lord was a baby. Babies and blessings have been paired in this narrative since the very beginning. So Leviticus chapter 12 is not reversing that or contradicting that. Rather, it is seizing upon aspects of the process to make an important spiritual point. Michael Morales is helpful here. He says, on the one hand, even though serious moral offenses render one unclean, yet the ritual uncleanness discussed in Leviticus 11 through 15 cannot be equated with sin simplistically. Situations that render one temporarily unclean, such as contact with a carcass, sexual intercourse, childbirth, or a skin ailment, are not regarded as moral offenses against God. Quote. So we shouldn't be asking here, what sin has this woman committed? That's not the question. That's not the issue. She hasn't committed a sin. Rather, we should be asking, what is this ritual requirement communicating? What is it teaching? That is the key to unpacking these sorts of texts. When we see that, we begin to understand that a ritual can be teaching about sin without actually condemning an action itself as sinful. Thus, the ceremonial law can use a skin rash to teach about sin and defilement without actually suggesting that it is sinful to have a skin rash. Does that make sense? Understanding that is the key to understanding this entire section. Hear now the word of the Lord, beginning at verse 1. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel, saying, If a woman conceives and bears a male child, then she shall be unclean seven days, as at the time of her menstruation she shall be unclean. Notice the connection to menstruation. That helps us understand that the focus of the symbolism here is on the discharge, 
not the child, and not the woman. Gordon Wenham says here, Every bodily discharge is a reminder of sin and death. Closed quote. So that's the issue. That's the focus of the symbolism in this ritual. When a woman has a child, it is a bloody affair. It is a dramatic reminder of the curse and simultaneously the entrance of blessing into the world. And so both aspects of that drama are seized upon for religious and ritual purposes. We see the blessing celebrated and commemorated in verse 3. And on the eighth day, the flesh of his foreskin shall be circumcised. Circumcision was the entrance ritual under the Old Covenant. It had nothing to do with purification, since the infant was already ceremonially clean when born. Now, here we are reminded that just because the primary purpose of a ritual is symbolic or religious, that doesn't mean that it doesn't reflect principles of wisdom and natural law. Of course it does. Medical experts often point out here that the eighth day is the ideal day to circumcise a child. Apparently, children are more susceptible to hemorrhaging before the fifth day of life, and they develop a more acute sense of pain soon after that. So the eighth day is pretty much the perfect day to perform a circumcision. And many medical experts suggest that there are hygienic and health benefits associated with circumcision as well. So that is all true and wonderful and encouraging, but none of it is primary here. The primary purpose of the ritual was religious. Circumcision was instituted by God as the sign and seal of the covenant that God made with Abraham. Abraham was declared righteous in Genesis 15 on the basis of faith. And then after that, God added the sign and the seal of circumcision in Genesis 17. And that sequence was very important for the Apostle Paul. He talked about that in Romans 4, verse 11. He said, he received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. Abraham was saved by grace through faith. His circumcision came many years later. It didn't make him saved. It reminded him that he was saved. It witnessed. It did not make. And that is important. Thus, Paul can say in Galatians 6.15, For neither circumcision counts for anything, nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. So to be clear, circumcision is not required for Christians under the new covenant. As the old Puritan preacher Matthew Henry reminds us, circumcision was a bloody ordinance, for all things by the law were purged with blood. But the blood of Christ being shed, all bloody ordinances are now abolished. Closed quote. So it is no longer in effect. It was a witness and a sign, but interestingly, we are not told exactly what circumcision is intended to signify. Why should cutting off a small piece of a very sensitive part of the human body represent God's unique relationship with the family of Abraham? We're not told specifically. But it may be significant that in the Egyptian world, circumcision was associated with ordination to the priesthood. And that was, of course, the cultural frame of reference for the original readers of this book, of the entire Pentateuch. So if Moses didn't feel the need to explain circumcision then our best guess is that it should be understood through the lens of its original Egyptian meaning. God would then be saying, 
that his covenant people are a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. And he wanted there to be a physical reminder of that upon the bodies of his people. And I might add, it seems reasonable and helpful to put that reminder in a place that is associated with challenges to holiness and consecration. We'll leave it at that. Verse 4. Then she shall continue for 33 days in the blood of her purifying. She shall not touch anything holy, nor come into the sanctuary until the days of her purifying are completed. So the mother is housebound basically for seven days, after which she could conceivably engage in marital relations with her husband, but must wait an additional 33 days before offering her purifying sacrifice. Again, this further period is generally associated with the continuing discharge that generally followed childbirth and that could extend for as long as six weeks. The Tyndale Old Testament commentary says here, The laws of purification after childbirth thus cover the maximum amount of time that the lochia, or discharge, could be expected to continue. Closed quote. Verse 5. But if she bears a female child, then she shall be unclean two weeks, as in her menstruation, and she shall continue in the blood of her purifying for 66 days. So if she has a female child, the entire process is doubled. As to why that is, no convincing explanation can be offered. That aspect of the symbolism is lost to us. Some suggest that it had to do with the perception in antiquity that the postnatal discharge associated with female children lasted longer than it did for male children. Some suggest that it has to do with the fact that female children will themselves subsequently menstruate, which serves to compound the symbol. Others suggest that it foreshadows the difficulties and dangers that women must face in this world, specifically through childbirth. Others suggest a possible connection to the narrative of the fall. But again, all of that is speculation. None of it is irrational speculation, but it is nonetheless speculation. The text itself doesn't say. So whatever we say, we should say cautiously. We can, however, be reasonably certain about what it doesn't mean. R.K. Harrison says here, The suggestion that the female fetus was considered more defiling than that of a male is not borne out by the nature of the purificatory rites, which were the same for both male and female offspring. Quote. So it isn't about the baby. It is about the discharge and the associated symbolism. But what specifically is being symbolized in the extended quarantine for female babies can no longer be stated with any certainty. Verse 6. And when the days of her purifying are completed, whether for a son or for a daughter, she shall bring to the priest at the entrance of the tent of meeting a lamb, a year old for a burnt offering, and a pigeon or a turtle dove for a sin offering. And he shall offer it before the Lord and make atonement for her. Then she shall be clean from the flow of her blood. This is the law for her who bears a child, either male or female. Notice the word clean in verse 7, as opposed to forgiven, as, for example, in Leviticus 4.20. This sacrifice is about ritual defilement, but it is explicitly not about sin. Hebrew scholar Baruch Levine is helpful here. He says, The requirement to present a sin offering does not necessarily presume any offense on the part of the person so obligated. Closed quote. 
the discharge symbolizes sin, but it is not in itself sinful. Again, keeping that distinction in mind will be very helpful as we make our way through this section of the text. Verse 8. And if she cannot afford a lamb, then she shall take two turtle doves or two pigeons, one for a burnt offering and the other for a sin offering. And the priest shall make atonement for her and she shall be clean. Of course, we remember that Mary and Joseph offered the sacrifice permissible for poorer families, suggesting that they were middle or lower class in terms of income. Based on the number of times that Jesus was able to visit Jerusalem in his childhood, scholars generally categorize Joseph as working class as opposed to poor. But for theological purposes, it is probably adequate simply to say that Jesus came from a humble background, humanly speaking. Zooming out to the big picture view here, we would say that childbirth is a dramatic experience filled with religious and spiritual significance. It is a time when we are reminded of death, chaos, and the curse. But it is also a time when we experience tremendous blessing and divine favor and kindness in the form of little boys and little girls. These rituals remind us that the curse touches everything and that it will be hard for all of us to maintain our purity and our preparedness for the presence of the Lord. But by his grace, and through careful attention to the means that he supplies, it is possible. Thanks be to God. Thank you, friends, for listening to another episode of Into the Word. If you're interested in additional resources or previous episodes and series, you can find those at intotheword.ca. You can also connect with Pastor Paul and other Bible readers on the Into the Word Facebook page. Just type Into the Word into the search bar. If you'd like to contribute to this listener-supported program, go to the website and click the Give bar in the top right corner. Once again, that's intotheword.ca. We hope to see you again real soon right here for another episode of Into the Word. Thank you.